So we're in Esther chapter 9. Esther's been in my reading plan lately. And this verse struck me just yesterday morning. I should have been reading it on Friday, but surely some of you fall behind in your reading plans as well. Don't you encourage me that I'm not the only... You're not, no? Okay. <laughs> right. All right, thank you. <laughs> Esther... Uh, Chapter 9, I'm just going to read verse 1, because there's a phrase in it that just hit me. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Edar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. Father, I thank you that you turn tables. And Lord, I do believe that you want to speak to us this morning. And I do believe there are people here who will be encouraged. And I pray, Father, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, your word will go forth and achieve the purpose for which you have sent it, that you will build your church that you will glorify Jesus, that you will lift up heavy hearts and hanging heads, and you will fill people with fight and passion and hope. In Jesus' name, amen. The story of Esther is, is amazing. You should read it sometime if you have not read it already, and even read it in one sitting. It's an amazing book. If you want to take a pen and underline every time God is mentioned in the book of Esther, you will not actually take the lid off the pen because he's not mentioned once, but he's in everything, (laughs) weaving things together. And to to really summarize the, the, the story very briefly, there's a guy called Mordecai, and he's a good guy. And Mordecai refuses to bow the knee to a man called Haman because he's a bad guy. And whenever Haman walks past Mordecai, Mordecai is meant to bow down to him and pay him homage and respect. And he refuses to do it. And Haman then cracks a plan to kill not only Mordecai, but all of his people, the Jews. Haman plans genocide. He is going to wipe out this people completely. And part of his plan is to build a massive set of gallows that Haman is going to hang Mordecai on. That's what he's going to do. But God is always ahead of the game, folks. Always, always, always ahead of the game. I sometimes marvel uh, on, the, on the occasions when I make the mistake of putting snooker on. About once a year, around about early May, I put the TV on late at night and start watching snooker, and I always regret it the next day. <laughs> the final of the, of the Masters or whatever it is, the World Championships is on, and you just get sucked in. And it always amazes me how the players and the commentators are usually about three or four shots ahead of what's actually going on on the table. And it's the same with chess players as well. They're they're working ahead, thinking if this happens, if this happens, if this happens. Don't be thinking, folks, that God is three or four steps ahead. God sees the end. (laughs) 
He sees the end. He's not just a little bit in advance of where the enemy is. He sees the end. And God is ahead of the game here. And he has put in place a beautiful girl called Esther. And he has put her in the place of prime influence in the land. She is the king's wife. (laughs) And he loves her. And he goes weak at the knees when Esther walks into the room. And Esther is a Jew. But the king doesn't know that. God puts her in that position. And as the story goes on, there is a great reversal. Esther is the the book of great reversal. God is the God of great reversals. And what actually happens on this great gallows that Haman made to hang Mordecai on... Haman ends up hanging on those very same gallows. Complete reversal of what the enemy had planned for the people of God. And God's people were protected and they were able to thrive and survive. They were not harmed. It is an incredible story. And what the Jews do in chapter 9 is what Jews always do, what I love and I think there's a little bit of Jew in me, they feast and they celebrate. In chapter 9, if you read on, if you look down to verse 22, because this was the day that they were meant to be wiped out. This was the month that they were meant to be executed en masse by the enemy. And what they end up doing in, in verse 22, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, the month when their sorrow was turned to joy and their mourning into a day of celebration, Mordecai wrote to them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy. Oh, church, we need to do that a little bit more. Feasting and joy. Four times they are mentioned in Esther chapter 9. The very day that you were meant to be wiped out, turn it into a day of feasting and joy. The day that God turned the tables. And they establish a feast in that chapter called the Feast of Purim, which happens every year still this year. It's on the 20th of March, the Feast of Purim. It falls in between, and we'll get back to this later, it falls in between another feast called Dedication and one called Passover. In between those two feasts, there is Purim. And it is a time of celebrating reversal. It's a time of celebrating turnaround. When the enemy came and meant harm and God turned it around and made it good. It's a rowdy, raucous celebration. Have you ever seen the old rattles that people would have brought to football matches way back in the day? And they would have swung them round and they made... You sometimes get them inside Christmas crackers, wee small ones. Mm -hmm. And then children irritate you, you know, running around with this thing. They actually, at the Feast of Purim, when they go to the synagogue and the story of Esther is read by the rabbi in the synagogue, every time Haman's name is mentioned, everybody starts booing and swinging these rattles. It's totally chaotic because they want to completely wipe out from history the remembrance of this man and his name. They literally boo and hiss and shout in the synagogue as his name is read. These things are called graggers. You can look them up. They're just exactly the same as, as football rattles. And I think as well, I think there's, there's something of God, once again, as we saw last week, mocking his enemy. Mocking his enemy. Last week we saw the presence of God being captured, or so his enemy thought. 
captured and brought into the temple of Dagon. And while God was there, he turned the tables on the Philistines. That's your phrase for today, turning tables. He turned the tables on the Philistines. He executed and decapitated their God. And then he went on a tour around their cities, wrecking all around him. Turning the tables, laughing at his enemies and having them in mockery. It's one of God's great specialities, folks, in the Bible. You will see it everywhere when you begin to look for it. He loves to reverse the fortunes of his people. He loves to take what the enemy meant for evil and turn it for our good. He loves to do it. It's his speciality. Let me just give you a couple of examples that came to mind as I, as I pondered this verse last night. In, in Genesis 50, you don't need to go there because you'll know the verse. Go if you want, that's okay. But Genesis 50 verse 20, you have the end of the story of Joseph. And Joseph... The enemy meant harm for Joseph. And the enemy meant harm for the people of God. Joseph ends up getting sold into slavery and sold into Egypt. <laughs> and it looks like a pretty bleak life of having no impact and doing nothing of any use is what awaits Joseph. But God shows up and God turns the tables and God takes Joseph from a prison in Egypt and makes him the prime minister of Egypt makes him second in command only to Pharaoh and saves the lives of his people who then come down during famine to get food. And that verse says, you meant it for evil. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. God turns things around. After Esther, the next thing comes up in my reading plan is Job. And the story of Job ends with, after 41 chapters of this man, misery. Everything that you would not want happening to you happens to Job. And at the end of it, it says that the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. God sees the end and that devil who comes to God in Job 1 and Job 2 and basically says, I want to give Job a hiding. You better believe that come Job 42, he is walking away with his ugly tail between his ugly legs, wishing he had never gone near Job because thousands of years later, people are still standing on a Sunday morning talking about Job and how God blessed Job. Reversal. The enemy meant to destroy and God came to reverse. It happens in the life of Moses as well. Pharaoh gives a, a, an edict or a command that all the Hebrew boys are to be slaughtered. And didn't we say last week in Psalm 2, the one who sits in the heavens laughs. And he takes a Hebrew boy and pops him in the river and lets him float down to Pharaoh's daughter's house. And Pharaoh's daughter raises him as her own child. And he then delivers God's people from captivity. God is the God of reversals. He is the God who will take everything that is coming against you and will turn it around on the enemy. He turns tables we sometimes get discouraged. We look at circumstances and we look at things and we allow our heads to start to drop and we allow our hearts to start to drop and we're not praying as much and we're not praising as much and we start to get dejected and a little bit defeatist. 
God loves those situations and we should not behave like that in those situations. He sees us as an opportunity to turn the tables. He sees it as an opportunity to do harm to the enemy. David does it as well in 1 Samuel 17. It looks like God's people are going to get wiped out. That's the history of Israel, basically. Just repeated times when it looked like they were going to get wiped out. And there's a giant called Goliath taunting them, mocking them. And no one will fight him. And then this boy comes along with a sling and a bag with a half or with five stones in it and takes him down and decapitates him. And the whole thing is reversed. And suddenly the men who were sitting in fear, terrified to actually go and attack the enemy, rise up and run at the enemy. Panic goes through the enemy camp because God is the God who turns the tables and does reversal. Go to Exodus, please, chapter 14. This is the one that's just been <clears throat> large in my mind, actually since last Sunday morning. Ruth read these verses in her introduction. Um, in Exodus 14, you know this story, but picture it. I want you to see it. I want you to put yourself in the position of Moses or in the position of some of the, the children of Israel who were coming out of Egypt. It looks like certain annihilation. You have on one side of you the Red Sea. It is not a pond or a puddle. It is a sea raging. You have on the other side of you Pharaoh's army. You are stuck in the middle and you have nowhere to go. And what the enemy means for destruction of the people of God, God is going to turn the tables and do the second greatest act of deliverance in all of history at that moment. On one side, you've got the sea. On the other side, you've got Pharaoh's army. And God says, I'm going to take the threat that's on one side of you. And I'm going to take the threat that's on the other side of you. And I'm going to mix them together and see what happens. Will we get twice the threat or will the threat actually be destroyed? And he says to, to the people through Moses, these verses that, that Ruth read last Sunday morning, verses 13 and 14 of Exodus chapter 14. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. That's faith. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And in the version that was read from last Sunday morning, this is what struck me. You need only to be silent. Boy, it's hard to be silent sometimes. The message that the people get is with these destructive forces on either side of them, stand still and be quiet. That's the hardest thing to do. Don't fight and don't talk. Just stand still. God is going to fight. That is a place of faith. That is a place of formation in your Christian life. You'll know what you're made of when you stand in places like that. When there are threats on either side of you and they are told to be silent and they are silent. And I think it's class that the next time the Israelites open their mouths, they stay silent all night. They walk through that sea in silence 
And when they get to the other side, they open their mouths again. And if you look at Exodus 15, look what they're doing. Moses and the Israelites sang a song to the Lord. They stayed silent when they were tempted to say things. They stayed silent. And then when they got to the other side, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. Somebody needs to write a song with that verse in it. They stay silent. They see God deliver them. They see him turn the tables. And then they start to praise. They start to raise their voices together and declare what he has done. What Christina read earlier from the Psalms about singing praises and singing about what God has done. Declaring his faithfulness. You know, folks, the devil's attempts to discourage us are at one and the same time God's opportunities for tremendous victory and progress. And you've got to grasp hold of that and actually start really believing it and really deciding in the difficult places to praise God, in the difficult places to cry out to God in prayer when everything in you wants to say, what's the point Those are the moments that instead of seeing the discouragement, you need to see the opportunity that God is placing in front of you for acts of deliverance, for marvelous moments of faith and growth and formation. God loves to turn the tables on the enemy. Loves it. And the enemy is stupid. He never learns. We give him more credit than he is due sometimes. He never learns. He does the same thing over and over and over again. And the people of God should get wise to it. You've come to discourage me. I'm going to stand still. I'm going to be silent. God's going to turn the table on you. And I will praise him. That will be the outcome. There will be a song of praise on the other side of this sea. Jesus was fond of turning tables as well. If you go to John, go to John 11. I'm going to briefly mention John 2. But if you could go to John 11. Jesus obviously turned the tables in the temple. It is one of my favorite scenes in the whole Bible. Because it's not a Jesus that I was really told about when I was little. You know, I was told about, you know, gentle Jesus, yes. Meek Jesus, yes. Mild, no, no, <laughs> no. Gentle Jesus, meek, that's good. We'll sing that, but we ain't singing that he's mild because he's not mild. I love this scene where Jesus goes into the temple in the second half of John chapter 2. And when he gets in there and he finds people selling in the temple, Taking advantage of the people of God. He turns over the tables in verse 15. And he says to them, take these things away. And in in Matthew and Mark's account, he also says that this house is a house of prayer. Never, ever, ever Let other things take away from the call that a community of God's people is to be a house of prayer. Never. 
Last week, we talked about the importance of praise. We talked about the fact that the ark, the presence of God, went three days into enemy territory, destroyed the enemy, came out, and David got it and put it into a new tent where there was 24-7 praise for 40 years. God's presence is found in a place of praise. And God's house which is not a building, it's a group of people. God's house, his dwelling is to be a house of prayer. And when we lose that desire to cry out to God in prayer, or when we allow discouragement to dampen our crying out to God in prayer, we are dropping the ball, folks. And we are moving away from a prime calling of God on a corporate group of people to cry out to him in prayer to lay hold on him and to plead with him for ourselves and for others and for a community and for a world that is without hope and without God. This house is to be a house of prayer. A thin space, a place where people encounter God as they seek him. I love what is said about Jesus in in John chapter 2. Whenever his disciples watch him, in the temple and they're probably slightly taken aback by the forcefulness of these tables being turned over and these money changers and these animals being driven out of the temple and the strength of his language and the look on his face and it says in verse 17 his disciples remembered that it is written zeal for your house will consume me cannot be said about me can it be said about you Zeal for his house, his people, not four walls and a roof. Zeal for his people, the community of faith, the place where he draws or he he dwells. Zeal for your house will consume me. I will be driven by zeal for the church, the people of God, that it would be a house of prayer and praise. Jesus is agitated and he turns the tables on those who have come into the temple to try and take advantage of the people of God. This is to be a house of prayer. If you've never read it, you should get a book by Jim Cimbala called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. It is the only book I've ever read in one day in my adult life. You know the wee books you get when you're a child that have four pages and you read them in a day, yeah? Not, it's the only real book. My, my pastor, Gary, at, at Listnadil gave it to me one bank holiday Monday about maybe 15 years ago, and he said, take that home and read it. And by about 6 p.m., it was done. An inspiring book about the story of Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York and how whenever he came and he took over a church that was about 20 people and literally was falling apart, he focused everything on prayer. And there's now about four or 5,000, the most famous choir in the world, and a move of God in Brooklyn. But it all happened in the engine room of prayer. Jesus turned the tables on those who would bring anything else into the temple. And in John 11... He turns the tables on death. And the reason I picked John 11, you know the story of Lazarus, and I'm not going to go into it in detail, but there is a reason for picking it. In John chapter 10, look at verse 22. Do you see the context for John chapter 10? Verse 22. It says in, in, in that verse, Then came the feast of dedication. And then go to John chapter 12. 
and look at verse 1. And it says that John chapter 12, these events start six days before the Passover. Now, if you'll remember what I said earlier, there's a feast called dedication and there's a feast called Passover. And there's one in the middle called Purim. And it is the feast of great reversal. It is the feast that celebrates the turning of the tables. And I would suggest that the raising of Lazarus corresponds to the feast of Purim in the Jewish calendar. That Jesus turned the tables on death itself while the people were celebrating Purim and remembering how that which was designed to destroy God's people got turned over on the enemy's face. Haman tried to devise a strategy of genocide. Haman hung on his own gallows. And death has come against the people of God. And Jesus stands outside a tomb and he says, Open the door, Lazarus, come out. Reversal. The most unimaginable reversal that anyone could ever imagine. Death reversed. A man walks out of a grave, takes off the grave clothes and lives again. The tables turned. The tables were not only turned on death, but the tables were turned on Satan as well. Not long after this, in fact, only a few weeks later, Jesus was in the same type of tomb as Lazarus. And we sometimes, I think, have slightly skewed notions of what happened on the cross and what happened for those three days in between his death and resurrection. Whenever Jesus gave up his spirit, which he chose to do in full control, he chose to give up his spirit. And whenever he did that, he said, it is finished. And at that moment, the veil was torn. And at that moment, the rocks split. And at that moment, the graves were opened and dead people came out of their graves alive at that moment. And at that moment, the tables were turned on Satan. And I don't know if you've ever had an experience in life where you've done something and immediately regretted it. And the wonderful phrase has gone through your mind, what have I done? Have you ever done that? What have I just done? And I can imagine Satan at that moment, as graves are opening and people are walking out of them, what have I done? Tables have been turned. I killed him. But God has turned the tables and used his death and resurrection to give life to billions of people throughout history. I tried to silence him. I tried to put him in the grave and silence him. But God has turned the tables on me. And now billions of people all over the earth speak his name every day. I tried to imprison him in the grave and put a stone across the door. And, and to, to set a guard at the door so he wouldn't get out. I tried to cage him in. But God has turned the tables and used this very thing to set billions of people free from cages, free from bondage, free from slavery to sin. In fact, the greatest act of deliverance in history. The tables turned on the enemy. What have I done? Imagine almost for a split second party, you feel sorry for him and then you realize that that's wrong. What a fool. 
What a fool. And this ongoing theme of tables being turned is in the New Testament as well. In Acts chapter 8, there's persecution and the apostles get scattered all over the place. And then it says in Acts 8 verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. (laughs) What have I done? I've tried to scatter and wreck the church. I've tried to, to, to get them all separated and all over the place, but they've only just gone and started more churches. They've only just gone and preached the gospel in more places. And a wonderful one in Philippians chapter 4, where Paul is in prison in Rome, and he has his tongue firmly in his cheek when he writes the end of this letter. It's getting to that point in the letter where you're getting a few names thrown at you and a few greetings, and it's easy to overlook it and not actually pay much attention as you're reading it. But at the very end of Acts or of Philippians chapter 4, Paul is in prison in Rome, in Caesar's prison. That's where the man of God has been locked up to shut him up and to remove his influence. And he writes this letter to the Christians in Philippi. And he says, tongue in cheek, smile on his face, greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. They've put me in Caesar's prison to shut me up and Caesar's family are getting born again. What have I done, stupid devil? Tables turned over and over and over and over again. Folks, learn to look at discouragement and instead of letting your head go down, learn to stand still and stay silent and wait for God to turn the tables. Because he always, always does it. But too many of us in that in-between space, we quit. We quit. We stop crying out in prayer. We stop praising him passionately. We start to, to leave our Bibles closed for days on end. We start to get discouraged. We start to doubt the call of God in our lives. And what God wants us to do at that moment is to dig deeper than ever. And to cling to those things he has said to us in the past. You know, everything the devil puts on the table against you makes the table heavier. So that when King Jesus then flips the table over and drops it on his ugly head, it causes more damage than ever before. Learn to see discouragement that way. Give me all you've got, devil, because the table will be turned and you will be severely wounded. Severely wounded and people will see it. It is another reason, I've never thought of it before, but for calling the church table. (laughs) We have... We've talked about why we, why we call this table. Not a nifty name. We've talked about it. You know about it. But I just thought we'll add another reason to the list. Because our king loves to turn over big heavy tables and drop them on the head of the enemy. I was listening to Dallas Willard during the week. Always a good thing. He, he that is dead yet speaketh. And uh, he was talking about discouragement And he said, do you have ways to encourage yourself in the Lord? Wonderful verse in 1 Samuel where David, his men are talking of stoning him because the women and the children have all been captured and taken away. 
And there's that verse that says, David encouraged himself in the Lord. And everything in me wants to know what he did. But I'm glad I don't know what he did. Because I think there are many ways we can encourage ourselves in the Lord. And I think if we knew what David did, we might just do what he did and not do other things. But Dallas Willard said, I was listening to it in the car, and, and, and he, he said, do you have ways to encourage yourself in the Lord? And I thought at that moment, one of the ways is what happens here on a Sunday morning. Whenever these people strike up music and we sing, I encourage myself in the Lord. I grasp hold of that time, whatever it is, and I determine I am going to encourage myself in the Lord. And I was talking to Aaron on Thursday night and I told him and I said, thank you for creating one opportunity. There are many other opportunities in my life and there are many other things I can do, but thank you for creating an opportunity where I can encourage myself in the Lord. I want the devil to look at us who he tries to discourage and say, what have I done? They're singing more than ever. They're praying more than ever. They're getting prayer fatigue. That's a real thing. They're getting prayer fatigue because they're not only praying in the morning, they're praying late at night and they're exhausted because they're praying so much. I tried to silence them and I tried to, to hold them down, but they've just kept on praying more than they've ever prayed before in their lives. You know, we have a choice when discouragement comes. We can hang our heads and we can quit or we can rise up in defiance against it. And wait for God to turn the tables. I sometimes imagine, this is probably not healthy, but I sometimes imagine demonic conversations. I sometimes wonder what the demons talk about. I remember reading Screwtape all those years ago. I maybe need to read it again. I can imagine the demons having a, a debrief at the end of the day, you know, where they, they gather, the, the Tandrigi demonic brigade gather and discuss what they've been up to and I can imagine a demon saying to another demon I tried to discourage him today and the other demon says great how did it go I says God turned the tables on me and he determined to encourage himself in the Lord okay try again tomorrow try harder tomorrow and then the next day there's a conversation I tried to get that person to give up on the church today to give up on it to say it's a bad job give up that's a great tactic. How did that go? God turned the tables on me and now that person is consumed with zeal for the church like never before and more excited about the future of the church than ever before and more determined than ever before. Try again tomorrow. I tried to get her to stop praying today. That's a great strategy. How did that go? God turned the tables on me and now she's trying to pray without ceasing because she read that phrase in that wretched book. And she's praying more than she's ever prayed in her life. Try again tomorrow. I tried to get that person, I tried to get him to stay silent during praise today. That's a brilliant idea. How did that go? God turned the tables on me and he got a fire in his bones and sang of the goodness of God until he could hardly speak. Is that your attitude? Do we have fight in us when discouragement comes? I used lots of weapons today against that Christian. 
I'll bet that went well. No, in fact, God turned the tables and said, no weapon formed against him will prosper. Do you believe it? Will you pray like you believe it on Tuesday night? Will you sing like you believe it? Will you open up your Bible and read it at home like you believe it and seek God like you believe it? Or will you allow discouragement to cause heaviness to come upon you? And I wrote this down earlier on during the, during the praise at the start. I tried to crush him, but God turned the tables and made new wine. Yeah. The devil tries to crush. And God says, you just keep on crushing those grapes because then the new wine flows. Come on. Church, do we live under the shadow of the Almighty? Do we know what it is to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might? Do you know what it's like to stand between the raging sea on one side and the raging army on the other side and stand in silence until God turns the tables and uses one thing to destroy the other one and you go and sing about it? Resist the devil and he will flee. Father, I thank you that you specialize in taking tables that are laden with discouragement, that are laden up with hopelessness and attack. I thank you, God, that you flip them over and you drop them from a great height on the head of the enemy. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Father, I ask for every single person here who knows right now that the enemy has brought something against their life, whether it's within the past week or the past year, and I pray that you'll encourage them, Lord, and I pray that they will defy him in praise and in prayer and in purpose and in mission, that they will defy him that the table will be turned over and the thing that he has brought against them to do them harm and to do them damage will become his downfall. Lord, glorify your name in great reversals in this church and in this town, I pray. And Father, may this people sing on the other side. May they write songs on the other side, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. Hallelujah. We love you and we praise you, Lord. Amen.